This is the AuthorBiz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number eight. Welcome to the AuthorBiz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to The Author Biz, the Monday podcast focused on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. Thanks for listening. My guests today are Bob and Pat Gusson, the founders of Ocean View Publishing, which, if you don't know, is one of the fastest growing independent publishers in the United States. Ocean View is recognized as one of the country's preeminent independent publishers of original mystery, thrillers, and suspense titles. I became aware of Bob and Pat's publishing company several years ago when I checked to see who published a series of Florida crime novels that I particularly enjoyed that were written by H. Terrell Griffin. Those are the Matt Royal mysteries, which are set about two hours up the road from me in Longboat Key, Florida. Then I started noticing that Ocean View had published other books that I'd read and enjoyed. Books like the Black Stiletto series from Raymond Benson, and even the Disposables from my guest in Session 6, David Putnam. I reached out to them a few weeks ago, and they graciously agreed to come on to the podcast. In this interview, we'll talk about how they select the 12 books a year they publish, how authors can improve their chances of having their work accepted when it's submitted, the value of an existing author platform when being considered for publication, and how they distribute books, both paper and digital, to bookstores and libraries. And Bob even shares some insight into how to give a good three-minute pitch at a book conference. What, what the author has to get across very quickly is a, a very quick synopsis of the book. And then uh, what makes it a really good one is if they can do that and then tell you a little bit about themselves, if they've written before, if they published before, what they, what they might plan to do to market it. That's very important. Uh, you know, the authors that remember that their job doesn't stop when their book gets published, but actually pretty much starts in a big way right then. Our best. In news that affects authors this week, Publishers Weekly has reported that bookstore sales for the first six months of 2014 were down 7.9% compared to the same period last year, according to preliminary estimates released Wednesday morning by the U.S. Census Bureau. Sales were $5.10 billion in the first half of 2014 down from $5.54 billion last year. The decline included a 7.5% drop in June bookstore sales to $703 million. Bookstore sales have fallen every month during the first half of 2014. For the entire retail sector, sales were up 3.6% in the same six-month period and rose 4.2% in June. The article didn't offer any commentary on reasons for the decline. In other news, Amazon has announced that they're offering Kindle pre-orders to Kindle Direct Publishing, or KDP, authors. According to the announcement, you can make your books available for pre-order in Kindle stores worldwide. Setting a pre-order allows customers to order your book as early as 90 days before the release date. When you make your book available for pre-order, customers can order at any time leading up to the release date that you've set, and it will be delivered to them on that date. According to their release, one advantage of the pre-order is that you can start promoting your book before launch to help raise awareness. Pre-orders will contribute toward sales rank and other Kindle Store merchandising, 
even before your book is released, which can help more readers discover your book. Well, that seems like a good thing, and for many authors it no doubt is, but it may not be for all. Some KDP authors with well-developed author platforms are able to orchestrate book launches that routinely land new releases at the top of the Amazon rankings, and they may find that offering pre-orders actually hurts. As an example, let's say you've got thousands of Facebook fans, Twitter followers, and a good-sized email list of readers who anxiously await everything you write. Making your next book available for pre-order gets the book into the Amazon rankings ahead of the release date, but all of those pre-orders count as sales when they're ordered. So instead of a flood of orders taking place within a few hours of a release, which would drive the book to the top of category and overall sales rankings, and trigger the Amazon algorithm to recommend the book to readers who may not be familiar with you, the orders are spread out over the period the pre-orders were available. You get the same number of sales on launch day, but you don't get the rankings bump that can keep your book at the top of the list for days or even weeks. Some authors may find pre-orders to be a mixed blessing. And finally, I'd like to thank Michael2402 from Great Britain for taking the time to review the podcast on iTunes. Michael says this is a great podcast for any aspiring writer, whether self or traditionally published. Stephen, that's me, has a great interview style, allowing the guests to speak in detail about their experiences with writing. From audiobooks to movie rights, this podcast covers everything with great and actionable advice for every level of author. Well worth a listen. Thank you, Michael. It's great to know we've got listeners in the UK, and it got me wondering where else people were listening. So I checked the analytics, and we have listeners now in 19 countries, which is pretty darn cool for a show that's only eight weeks old. If you find the show beneficial, one great way to help to support us is to write an honest review at iTunes. The reviews are helpful, and they show up in the iTunes store for the countries where the reviews are written. As usual, everything mentioned in the show will be linked up in the show notes, which you can find at theauthorbiz.com slash session eight, and that's the number eight. Bob and Pat Gusson retired from lengthy careers in medicine and medical research 14 years ago. And as you'll hear in this interview, it was Pat's desire to write as a second career that became the genesis for Ocean View Publishing. Bob and Pat split their time between homes in Longboat Key, Florida, East Hampton, New York, and New Zealand, where they own two vineyards. They're fascinating and inspirational people. This information-packed interview begins with me asking Bob how and why they decided to get into the publishing business. Both Pat and I retired uh, from long careers in medicine and medical research on the same day. We retired February 1st, 2000. And at the time, everything we planned to do was based on our backgrounds, with one exception, and that was Pat had decided about a year or so before that that she might like to write a novel. And so she started writing a novel, and when we retired, Pat wanted to go to writers' meetings. We're very big on these meetings that sharpen skills, you meet people. They're extremely important. And she uh, sort of pressured me into going with her. I was not interested in writing fiction. I said, why don't you go? I'll be happy. Fine. She said, no, I want company. And I guess I felt it was better to be there than to be in an empty house without her. So (laughs) I started going to these meetings as well. And while she went to all the sessions, learning about deepening characters, et cetera, I wandered around and talked to people, and I talked to a whole lot of very frustrated wannabe authors. They were writers. 
They couldn't get published. Uh, some got published even by big publishers, and they were not doing well because their book didn't take off like a rocket, so they were ignored. And one day, after several of these meetings, I went to Pat, and I said, at lunch I met her, and I said, you know, we've had pretty good careers. We have a little bit of money we could invest. I think I want to start a publishing company. And she was a little shocked, but uh, she said, well, that'd be fine, and she'd like, you know, she'd certainly participate, but she wanted me to uh, publish her book first. She had written a book called Shadow of Death, and uh, she had a very big-time New York agent, and I said to her, Pat, there's there are two major problems with that. Number one, I may fail, and I, I know that you're going to get a big publisher, and they can do a lot more for you than I can do. And secondly, the last thing I want to be looked at as is a self-publisher. And if I publish my wife right off the bat, that's exactly what it's going to look like. And she said, well, I don't care. She said, look, uh, you're going to make mistakes on your first book, and I'd rather you make them on me and not somebody else. <laughs> so reluctantly, I agreed to do that. We started the company. Uh, we took a bit of time with, with paper boards, uh, writing notes of what we had to do, what we had to line up. We were very fortunate that... Uh, uh, we met a guy uh, and his wife, uh, his name is Warren Phillips, Warren and Barbara Phillips. He was the retired publisher of the Wall Street Journal and the CEO of Dow Jones. Wow. And he and Barbara, yeah, big time. So yeah. he and Barbara had started a publishing company called, uh, called Bridgeworks, very near to us. So we met them for lunch. At, he didn't know us. I, I told him what I wanted to do. In fact, when I said I wanted to start a publishing company on the phone, his first comment was, why would you ever want to do that? So it's hard work, you'll probably never make any money. And I told him the same thing I just told you. I wanted to help some authors that weren't getting published. I thought there was a lot of talent out there that wasn't getting heard because the big publishers keep taking the same authors over and over because they know they can sell. So he's, I said, look, would you just meet with us and give us a little bit of information on what it takes? So the next day, we met for lunch, spent a couple hours not only did he tell us everything that he thought we had to do, but he introduced us to a, a New York distributor, which never would have taken two of us with no experience or, you know, as a distributor of our publishing company. He introduced us to a, a woman who had come out of big publishing and had, a, had her own company that did layouts and, and, and all of the preparation to make a book. And without them, we would never have gotten started. So... We sort of refer to them as the, god as the godparents of, of Ocean View Publishing. But with their help, uh, we got going. And I had, during my little roamings at these writers' meetings, I had talked to uh, two authors who had been published uh, by big publishers. Uh, one, Martha Powers, had been published several times by Simon Schuster, but she had written uh, romance novels, and she wanted to switch to thrillers. And uh, Don Bruns had been published by St. Martin's, but he wasn't very happy with that. And they both, when I, I, I had lunch with him one day and tell him what I was thinking of doing, I said, look, you know, if you actually go ahead and do it, we'll give you our next book. So I had two published authors lined up. Pat is the first, two, two published authors, <laughs> and then a woman who ran a bookstore in, in St. Armand's Key in Florida, Circle Books, introduced us to Ward Larson, and he had self-published his book, The Perfect Assassin. And she said, 
I have sold in this store 300 copies, and, and but that's all he's selling. And you guys can do well for him, and he could do well for you. So we we took that book, we re, we edited it, we changed the ending a bit, and we signed on Ward Larson. So we had four books. And wh- where are we now, chronologically? What year was this? 2000 and, 2005, when all this is going on. Okay. We're ready to put the books out in 2006. Mm-hmm. Most of them did pretty well, and and what really exonerated us from the self-publishing thing is Pat's first book, Shadow of Death, was one of the finalists by international thriller writers for the best first novel. Plus, <laughs> excuse me, as I said, we had other authors uh, who had been published. The second year, 2007, we got more. Well, we because we we didn't limit who could apply or who could submit. We were rapidly going above 500 submissions a week. Oh my and, uh, gosh! <laughs> and and uh, and we eventually had to change that. We couldn't handle it. But anyway, the next year I think we put out seven books, and then we upped it. I don't remember the exact sequence, but the last four years or so we put out 12 books a year, which we decided we we're going to hold at that for the time being because we can handle that many books. So we put out 12 a year. Uh, one a month, we put them out in hardcover and ebooks simultaneously. Some of them we've had picked up for audio, and uh, some we will. We normally sign an author for two two books, and when the, if they do well with the first book, about the time the second book's coming out, we will put the first book out as a trade paper as well. So we really cover all of the formats. So that's really the history of Ocean New Publishing. We we wanted to be a I always wanted to be a traditional publisher, so we pay advance, we pay royalties, we don't charge the authors. So we're like one of the big guys, but we're small. And uh, we've done pretty well. We have about 15 bestsellers. Uh, one of Pat's books a few weeks ago hit both the New York Times and the uh, USA Today bestseller list. And then there was one, which surprised me, not one of her new ones, but following a little promotion, it really went crazy. So, you know, she's very pleased to be a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author. But uh, we've gotten a lot of awards, and we're very active with the big societies in our genres, which are mystery, thriller, suspense. We stay in those genres. And so international thriller writers knows us very well. Mystery Writers of America know us very well. We're accepted publishers for them, so people who publish with us can become members of those organizations. Uh, and are eligible for awards and things like that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, we've had all kinds. We've had uh, Edgar nominees. We've had Anthony and uh, the Cavity and an Agatha Award nominees. Uh, we've won USA Best Book Awards, Florida Gold Medal Awards, uh, all kinds. Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin Awards. So we're doing quite well with a very good uh, reputation for a small publisher in that limited genre. And that, to us, that was the key, limiting ourselves so we get to know reviewers, we get to know the people in the societies, we get to know the big-time writers, we get blurbs from everybody, from Lee Child, Steve Barry, uh, all the big names have blurbed our authors for us. Uh, so we're doing quite well. Uh, you know, we're small, we can't do the things the big guys do, we don't have the horsepower. Uh, we haven't been able to break anybody out really, really, really big, although Ward Larson with The Perfect Assassin has now gone with Tour Forge for his next book in that series. 
which is great. I mean, we're happy for him. He was very reluctant to do it. We told him that, you know, it was good for him and it would be good for us because we, we published four of his other books, including the precursor to, to, uh, Assassin's Game, which is his new book coming out this month. So as that book grows, we think Perfect Assassin will grow as will his other books. Plus, we got him a movie contract. So <laughs> Perfect Assassin will be a major motion picture. It's now sold to a big French studio. We don't know when that all happened, but we're looking for a director right now. Now, let, so, let me... You know, a lot of things... Let me jump in and ask a question about something you said uh, a little while ago you, when you mentioned that Pat had recently become a New York Times and USA, USA Today best-selling author, but not with her most recent book. How did how did that come about? It just seems odd. We ran a promotion on on BookBub. Okay, and uh, it 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 uh, it worked well. It, it reduced the price to like ninety nine cents for one one day and she went on social media and she really pushed it. And she had a 10 day program that she put in place. She recommends to her authors every day. She puts something out on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, etc. And, uh, between those two, it went crazy. It sold, I don't know, 30,000 or so copies in one day and, and follow up with more even. So it made both of those lists. So it, was, it became great. the best, uh, the the top ranked uh, book on Nook for a while. So it was number one, that was good. So what's it like then when when something like this happens and then all of a sudden it just explodes like that? I, I assume it's not what you were expecting. Well, we were hoping, we weren't expecting. <laughs> we did have we had past experiences when when Amazon Kindle runs their daily deal. At least they used to be very specific and. One of the first books they did was Pat's Twisted Justice. And that book, with their daily, they, they put out a big email blast. They reduced the price to like 99 cents. And in that one day, that book sold 40,000 copies. So that made the bestseller list uh, for them. And is that but, something uh, that they just, they select the book? Or do you, is there an application process that you go through to get them to select it? How does, how does that work? Through our distributor, Amazon requests quarterly lists of books that we would be willing to put up at a, a, a special price. I mean, obviously okay. you have to read from your, your price fairly significantly, and they and they pay us based on the lower the, the deal price. So if you're selling them 99 cents, that's what they're paying you on. So we submit we submit virtually all of our books. I mean, we we're happy. We what we need mostly is exposure. So the, the broader we can get in sales, even at the lower amount. Of course, you know, we never expected 40,000 books to be sold, and even at 99 cents, that's a pretty nice sale. But but we we do that, we offer up all of our books. But after that, Amazon makes, they make the total decision. We have no say in what they're going to pick. And in fact, on our daily deal, they, all, they usually notify us like three days or so in advance. So we don't have a lot of time to hop on social media and try to push it, but... Uh, you know, we've sort of been after them to let us go a little further in advance, but you can't, you know, dealing with Amazon's dealing with the <laughs> elephant in the room. So <laughs> you, you're not kidding. What they, yeah, whatever they want to do, they do. But well, those have been blessings for us. They've, they've broadened, they've, they've, they've made us bigger sales. They've broadened the exposure of our authors, and they, they carry. I mean, it, it happens in one day or so on, on each of those kinds of promotions that they carry. And, and most of the time, 
the books never come back down to the ranking they were. They always stay higher after one of these deals. Well, let's let's take a step back. Let's go. Let's walk back to 2006 when you started publishing books. In 2006, there was no Kindle, um, so there you're publishing hardcover and paper. How have right. things, other than the obvious, like we have digital now, how has your world changed uh, since 2006 in, in terms of publishing? The world changed mostly with, with the e-books. I mean, we, we were fortunate to be there when this all started. So we got in on the ground floor with e-books. The publishing world has changed a lot other than that. And, in fact, if it weren't for the e-books, I think we having wanted to be traditional publishers, would have a major problem because what's happened, as you know, first of all, Barnes & Noble and Borders were growing at a rate that, that was killing the independents. And we, as a small publisher, tried to have a very good relationship with independents, and yet they were dying. So we were losing sales there, plus we weren't quite big enough for Barnes & Noble or Borders to put us in all their stores nationwide, so we got regional sales from them. Uh, then with ebooks and Amazon particularly, they're killing Barnes and Noble. Borders are gone. And now, you know, we're, there, there's some loss of sales in the big chains. But the good side of that is the independents are coming back to life now. And so why, we're, why do you think that is? Because I, that puzzles me, the fact that the independents are coming back. But I keep reading that they're doing, some of them are doing extremely well. They are, in our opinion, and, and maybe Pat feels differently, but the I think they're coming back because Barnes & Noble and Borders have a big change. Well, they are the big change. There's books a million and a few others smaller, mm -hmm. but they've lost their power. I mean, they uh, the deals that you could walk into Barnes & Noble, and maybe you still can today, and buy these top-notch author books for, you know, $6 or so, the poor little independents, they're selling it at list price. Right. And, you know, the benefit is their hand-selling. They know what they're talking about. But the battle, that kind of price differential for them was killing them. Now that, that Barnes & Noble's cutting back and they're hurting and Borders is gone, I think that the independents see an opportunity and say, hey, there's a new chance for us. So they're starting to build up, you know, they're publicizing more. They're doing more things. So, you know, I think... And I think they're starting to do more events. Um, they're starting to do more events with... Um, with authors that are are either self-published authors or small publisher authors, so you know I, I believe that they're starting to um, appreciate more than you know just the the top five publishers. No, I do think that it's the the weakening of Barnes and Noble primarily that's given the new breath to the the independents who see an opportunity now that they 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 saw going away is. Barnes Noble seem to be getting stronger. Borders seem to be getting stronger. All the chains are coming in, running them out of business. And so I, I do think that that's the difference now. Now, when I first came across Ocean View Publishing, it was through an author of yours named H. Terrell Griffin, who's, who's written a series that takes place on Longboat Key. I am a big sucker for Florida crime fiction, and he, you know, it was a sweet spot kind of thing for me. I've read all of his books, and I love them, and I saw you guys. And so I, for some reason or other, I just automatically thought that you were a very regional publisher. And then I met David Putnam, who I interviewed a couple weeks ago at Sleuth Fest. 
in Orlando, and he said that he had signed with, with you guys, and he's in Los Angeles. So I was obviously wrong about that. What is your reach now in, in terms of authors? Are you around the country? Uh, we're around the world, actually. Okay. We have a uh, we published a book called Trilemma in the uh, spring, and that was a New Zealand author. Uh, we published uh, John LeBeau, who is in uh, Garmisch, Germany. He is a CIA agent. And in fact, uh, we published two of his books, Collision of Evil, uh, Collision of Evil and Collision of Lies. And in both cases, we had to have those books cleared by both the uh, CIA <laughs> and the NSA. And on the last book, they forced us to put on the cover that we weren't dis- disclosing any classified information, which to us was, that was like mana from heaven. Yes. You know, put on there that the, that the CIA has made us say that we're not disclosing anything that's restricted. So we have, uh, and we, we've got several California authors now. Phil Donnelly, who is, I think, going to follow in Terry Griffin's footsteps. He's got a great character in Donovan Nash. Uh, he's published a couple of books, uh, Zero Separation and uh, Deadly Echoes. And he's working on his third. He's a, he's a pilot, and it, it has a lot of that kind of activity in it, as does Ward Larson, who is a pilot. We're all over the all over the country now. Well, well pretty much in Michigan and uh, Chicago and New York. Wyoming. And, yeah, all over. And I know that you guys were both just up at, at Thriller Fest. I, I know Bob mentioned that you've had a long-time uh, relationship with ITW. <laughs> Is that fun for you now, or is it mostly business? Because in the in the beginning, when you were going to these conferences, it was fun and educational. It sounded like, and now I'm guessing they're more uh, working conferences. Well, I, I speak for myself. I, I, we've never had more fun, and we're happy. It's the whole thing. I mean, it's a lot of work. We're working seven days a week, so we're unretired, essence. But we've always had fun. We love those conferences. We uh, both Pat and I are on panels. Uh, I take pitches as an, with the agents. I act as the agent for Oceanview. So I took 55 pitches, three-minute pitches in three hours or something. It's a little exhausting. Okay, now let's, let's, let's stop right there because that's something that's, that, that I think will be really interesting to listeners. What is the process for the three-minute pitch? Because most, most authors are, are thinking about the pitch that they can give, you're on the receiving end of this pitch. What's a good pitch? What makes a good three-minute pitch? Well, I think what, what the author has to get across very quickly is a, a very quick synopsis of the book. And then uh, what makes it a really good one is if they can do that and then tell you a little bit about themselves, if they've written before, if they published before, what they, what they might plan to do to market it. That's very important. Uh, you know, the authors that remember that their job doesn't stop when their book gets published, but actually pretty much starts in a big way right then, are best. And if you can do that in three minutes, you need a, a quick synopsis of the book, not a rambling one, and most of them are pretty well prepared. <laughs> it's like they memorized this elevator speech, you know, mm-hmm. a 30 second or 40 second. So, you know, a minute, a minute and a half of that, and a minute or a minute and a half of saying, you know, this is my first book, but, you know, I'm on Facebook. I do this. I do that. I, I want to go out and speak at libraries. I want to speak to Kiwanis Club and a Rotary Club. And, you know, I'm willing to do that in book signings. There, That's important. 
that's a very important for an author. Now, when when you receive these pitches, is it something where an agent has prepped them and said, you know, let's get all of these points in the pitch, or are some of them some of them are are just done more professionally than others? Uh, well, these these are actually with, with if you could picture this session, it's it's like three big rooms, and there are probably sixty to seventy agents, and a few of us who aren't legitimately agents, but we're acting for our publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, my case, Ocean View, Kensington had somebody right next to me. Uh, she was taking pictures for them. These are generally people who are looking for agents. See, most okay. of the people they pick are agents that they want. So for a couple of us, it's a little different. They're pitching directly to the publisher. Uh, so they're looking for agents. Most of these, I guess I'd say all of these people do not have agents. They're there to find them. Now, what percentage... you? Tell me again how many you said you listened to? Uh, about 55 in three-minute pitches. Okay. What what percentage of those intrigued you? Well, the problem I have, Steve, is that when you listen to them and it's so short, I almost get to the point where unless I could eliminate them because they're young adult or they're science fiction or they're so paranormal that they just don't seem right for us, mm-hmm. I have – I if, if they're in the – mystery, suspense, thriller genres, and they sound like a reasonable story, and they don't, they don't sound worn out. You know, I, I, I tell some people they're talking about Middle East terrorists. I go, you know what? We've already published two or three of those, and we, keep, we must get 100 a week. You've got to find something unique. But for the most part, what I end up doing is telling them, go to our website, go to the submissions page, and it will direct you to submit the first 30 pages of your novel, and a 750-word or less synopsis electronically. And it gives you a little introductory space to say something. On that space, what I want you to do is say that I requested that you submit this to us at the ITW meeting. That way, it'll get past our screeners, and it won't get screened out. guarantee you I will see it, Pat will see it, our editors will see it, and you'll at least get a shot. Okay, so let's so that's what I do for myself. Let's dig down into this a little bit more. Not not so much just the, those people that you met and and did the. Uh, I, for some reason or other, I just keep flashing back on speed dating. Um, but <laughs> so let's just talk specifically about the submission process. So at, at one point, you said you were getting five hundred submissions a week, and you've you've narrowed down what you're willing to accept now. I see from the website, but you're still getting a significant number that come in with a 750-word synopsis and uh, the first 30 pages. So what makes a really good submission? Okay, I will give you my part of it, and Pat can talk to that as well. Okay. Uh, first, first of all, the blessing of being in our genres, the mystery, thriller, suspense genre, unlike romance and things like that, is if you don't catch us in the first... 30 pages, probably in the first 10 pages, I'm probably not going to be interested because readers that read our types of books we put out, they go in a bookstore, if you watch them, they'll lead through, they'll look at the insert, the the, the claps, the back of the book, maybe, they'll, they'll lead through maybe three or four pages. The best thing is to find a body or have a murderer at first two or three or four pages. Something, something has to happen in our genres to grab the reader right away. They can't go on. I mean, I've read a few romance novels. You get to 100 pages in before you start to feel like, you know, some things are really happening. 
You can't do that in our genre. So it makes it a lot easier for us to judge whether this is going to ramble on or whether this author has, has caught us in the first few pages. That, to me, is most important. But, you know, there are other things that an editor, or Pat's our chief editor, look at. Obviously, you know, sloppy stuff, misspellings, mistypings, really bad punctuation. All those, when you start reading, you know, sometimes I just go back, I, I've read what I call, we call them the read 30s, and I go, this is just very immature writing. I, you know, it's, the story, in most cases that are turned down, I, I have to say, from my standpoint, the stories are quite interesting. When, you know, I'll read the first 30 pages, I'll read their synopsis, I read the synopsis after, I don't read the synopsis first, because I want to see how the first 30 pages grab me. And I'll read the synopsis after, and most of them are interesting stories, but the way they're told is just not very good. And that's what I see. But, well, I but, think it's the, the, the quality and the style of the writing and the, the, the things that you see so often are sentence structures that are, that are not right, transitions that are not right, things, things like that, uh, clunky writing, um, too much backstory too soon, too much repetition, things like that, I think, are the things that will knock a story out. Um, because, as Bob said, so many times the characters themselves are great and the plot is great, but the story just isn't told in a, in a smooth way. Do you think... And some of that is very judgmental. Of course, and that's, that's your job as an editor is, is to make those judgments. Um, is, do you think that it's that people are, are rushing to submit rather than just spending a little bit more time on the first 30 pages or the first 50, whatever it may be? Um, they're just in too big a hurry to just get the, get the ball rolling? I, I, I think maybe that's true that they don't go over the manuscript again to, to clean it up. Uh, but and, and again, when we ask for a book, we, we want to make sure that if we like the, the first 30 pages, that the entire manuscript is available, like, right away. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't pass on the first 30, but we, we ask for the rest of it, you know, pretty much immediately if we like it. So it's not like they're, you know, rushing for the first, only the first 30. They need to have the whole thing done totally, perfectly. But I think that, uh, I, I, I think there is a lot of uh, a sloppy attitude, too. And, you know, it's true for almost all publishing companies now, uh, they do very, very little editing. So they mm-hmm. really expect a near-perfect manuscript coming coming in. And, you know, the, the really the, the thing that really make, can make and break a book, and it's so difficult to define, and, and that, is, that is the voice. I mean, if the, the author has to be able to come through with a with a, with a voice, and that is impossible to explain, <laughs> but you know it when you see it. Matt Royal is a great voice. It's, that's, that's the kind of thing you need. I look forward to hearing Matt Royal. And when you open that book and you start reading, you know who's talking. You know whose life you're in. And you know, you know how, they, how they are going to present themselves, and you just feel like you know the character. To get back to the Matt Royal, that's the uh, the Terry Griffin books that that's we were Terry Griffin, yeah right. the, that we were talking about Terry earlier. Griffin. Well, let's let's get back to the submission process. So you've got let's let's use well let's let's say I submit to you and I send you a really nice first thirty pages and a really nice submission and you say yes send me the full manuscript. 
what percentage yeah. of times, uh, what, what percentage does the full manuscript not really follow up well, the first 30 pages? Well, many times. And uh, m- yes, many, many times. So keep in mind, even though we've tightened our requirements to, you know, either an agent or you have to have met, you, you know, one, uh, been recommended by one of our associates, we consider all of our authors, ourselves, et cetera, and our employees. And we always encourage these writers, you can meet us at meetings. Go to the writers' meetings. Go to ITW. Go to Sleuth Fest in Florida. Go to uh, MWA meetings. And if you meet us and you say you met us there, that will make you eligible to submit. Otherwise, you have to have an agent now or you have to have been published by a legitimate publisher before. So we have tightened it. Yet, we get uh, innumerable manuscripts and 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 we only publish 12 a year so there are some good ones that we just don't think are quite at the level of some of the other ones so you know it can be a matter of priority but most of them start to fail when you go from the 30 page to the full one and pat can talk more about this but it's the rhythm you know they have a wonderful start they die in the middle or they rush to an end and it, it disappoints you at the end those are the kind of things that happen in the full manuscript and i think pat's more qualified to to talk to that than I am, but yeah, you know, that's true. There's, there's nothing more. There's nothing that saddens me more than to be loving a manuscript and having it, you know, get through that difficult middle and then at the end just fall apart. And it it happens more than more than you would think. I don't know whether writers get tired at the end, but but um, it's very disappointing when that happens. But to get to your point about percentage, it's hard to say. We may might of those that we ask for the full manuscript. We probably end up with accepting maybe five percent of those. And yeah, I think that. And remember too that with us, we get a lot of repeat submissions from our current authors, so that really narrows down the the the, the opportunity for um, new you know new authors to to. Um, to come on board. Well, let's let's go back to the example of me. Let's let's say I, I wrote the the good thir- first thirty pages. The book falls apart at the end. You're rejecting me. Uh, how do you do it? What's the process? Do you send? I hear I hear the term all the time: form rejections, or I got a personalized rejection. What does all that mean? And what does it mean to you? And what does it mean to the author? Well, you know, for us trying to handle the volume that we're handing, we unfortunately cannot personalize everything. So we do have, you, you may get a, a form just saying that, you know, thank you very much. It just doesn't meet our needs and without any further explanation. If there's a definite a definite flaw that we've identified, for instance, the end just fell apart, we'll, we'll tell the author that. And lots of times we will invite them to resubmit if they, you know, so choose to go back and uh, take another look. So, you know, a, re- a reject could be a tentative reject based based on uh, going back and um, with a redo. So we might. So it could be. It could be. It could be either way, Steve. It could be a, a form. No, it's not right for us. Or it could be a reason and a and perhaps an invitation to resubmit. And and of the people that you you send the reason and invitation to resubmit, um, do you get uh, do you get a sense of what that means to the author? Do they oftentimes resubmit? They almost always resubmit, and they seem to fall into two different camps. 
Um, one is you, you they, they read some in and you really don't see anything that you've addressed addressed. And then the other camp is where they've totally fixed it all and uh, it's it's fantastic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes we'll tell an author just because of the rhythm, the, the voice or some character those characters not being deep enough. So why don't why don't you consider working with an editor? Because your story's good you have a lot of good qualities in your writing, but there's some things that need to be done, and you can even mention a few, like the character depth, uh, uh, the rhythm in the middle, whatever it is. But we tell them, you know, get yourself an editor and, and work with it if you haven't done it. And, and sometimes that's an incredible help. And they'll come back after it's been edited. Uh, we just accepted one. It, she added, this woman had it edited a few times, and... Uh, we looked at it, went back, and went back and forth about three times. But now it's a it's a wonderful book. And you know what happens quite often with, uh, is that when we when we really like a book and we encourage the author to go back and make some modifications, so many times it's because the book is too long. Yes, you know it's too many words, but. More importantly, there's too much repetition in it, and the book as a thriller would be so much better if you took, say, arbitrarily 30% out of the book. And so many times they do it, and it comes back and and uh, ends up in an incredible thriller. Yeah, I mean, we've taken books that have been 140,000 words, 150,000, even one at 160,000, and told people, you've got to cut out 50,000 words of this book. Mm-hmm. And it, in the old days, we actually helped a couple of authors we cut. And we said, spend innumerable numbers of hours editing. We can't do it anymore. But we have helped people cut their But we will show them. We will show show them them where they can can be done. And when we go through the first read, even before we know whether we're going to take it or not, we see places. I put a line through a whole page and say, you can eliminate this, eliminate this, because if it ends up that we are going to accept it, we've already made a big jump in our editing and what we're going to tell them. Now, it, it's it's interesting you mentioned the editing process. It's something that you mentioned earlier, the idea that years ago in, in publishing, an author might submit a third or fourth draft, and it might be accepted, and then you know the editing process might begin with an in-house editor, and that's rarely done anymore. So the idea of going out and attracting a freelance uh, editor who works well in your genre to help you produce the book makes a lot of sense to me and it, it certainly eliminates those pro- or some of the problems you were talking about with the first 30 pages where it's just dismissed out of hand because of poor sentence structure grammar punctuation things like that absolutely and you know i mean with all the editing i do with my books i always send my book out to a, to a contract editor i i know people that edit their own books and i don't know how they do it I, I think it's impossible. I think it is. You're just not objective enough. Uh, you know, we used to do a lot of editing, as Pat said, and, and I said, that, and, and it took a lot of time, and we'd really do a very complete edit for people and turn some books from not very good to, to pretty good books that we published. But these days, we just don't have the time to do that. And And everybody really should, if you're really serious about writing and you get back a an encouraging rejection, uh, not out of hand, but rather, you know, the book needs tightening up. A couple of the characters need to be better defined, deepened. Uh, 
it, it would be crazy not to go get yourself an editor and, and work with that person, let them edit the book, because they make it so much better. I, no matter how many times you yourself have gone through it, you know, it's just like you read words that could be wrong, but you, you know what you're looking for, and you, you pass over them. Where an outside editor starts looking, and it's not just the words, it's everything. They give it a whole different approach. And as Pat said, and she's a, she's a good writer, and she edits a lot. And yet, every one of her books she sends out to an outside editor before she before we finalize. I think that's fabulous advice. I really do. And then on top of that, on top of that, if you know, once we accept a book, we will always have it copy edited, right? And we will always have proofed. You mentioned books coming in with too many words. Is there a sweet spot now for mysteries and thrillers in terms of word count? We think there is. We like we like ninety thousand words. Okay. You know, and a lot of times an author will come back and say, "Well, gee, I just read a book and it was, uh, you know, one hundred forty thousand words." And I, you know, well, who wrote it? Well, Ken Follett. Well, <laughs> when you're Ken Follett, you can write those big books. You no, know? but you're a new author. People don't want to take a chance on a book that's the size of the Bible. So, and you know, I just got a I just got a book in today with forty five thousand words. Well, that's not enough. So ninety thousand words is the an approximate target for a thriller or mystery. Yeah, I think it's a good target. Very good target. Okay, let's let's go back to the submission process or the the decision on your part to bring an author on and, and to publish them. Um, does social media and a and an existing author platform have anything to do with your decision making process? Yes, it does. But first of all, it has to be a very good book. That's right. Has to be a good story. Has to be well written. All the things we said. Mm-hmm. Taking all of that in, we actually try to have a call before we sign a contract. We like to have a, a telephone discussion with the author talking about what they're going to do to help market the book. In addition, once then once we sign, once we think that we've heard enough that's good, when we're once we sign them, we send them a whole author's package that asks for, you know, synopses. It asks for, you know, do you have a website? If not, you know, do you need help getting one? Do you do social media? Do you have a Facebook page? Do you have a, a Twitter page, a LinkedIn, whatever? Uh, we go through all of that. We ask them to fill all of that in. It's about a, oh, maybe a 10-page. About 12 pages of um, information about, you know, the things that we can use for their marketing campaign. Yeah, they have to put together an elevator speech, 30-second, something you could say in 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I say, we ask for 100 uh, and 175-word synopses. Uh, their bios are short and long. We, we, we try to get as much as we can, ask for uh, ideas about the cover design. Uh, we ask, they they do a an interview. We have interview questions, so they're going to be interviewed, and they answer them. Of, you know how they started writing, all, all the kind mm-hmm. of stuff that you know you as an interview. Not all that you as an interview would ask, but enough that you know it, it brings out a lot of information about them. And uh, it, we're very we push them a lot to be part of the marketing. But I think the important thing that that we have started to do that Bob mentioned was having a, a teleconference with them before the final signature of the book, just so they understand what we're going to do and we understand what they're going to do. So if we get an inclination on that call that they're not going to do anything, well, then we might have second thought. And we told people, uh, you know, I think based on what we're all talking about, I think that 
you know, this is not going to work. You ought to look for somebody else. And we've got people say, look, I have a full-time job. I don't have time for this. It took me a lot of time to write this book, but, you know, I'm counting on you. And we go, whoa, whoa, no, that, that can't work. I, most of our authors have full-time jobs. I mean, there aren't many authors that, that make a living by writing until you hit really at the top. Right. So, you know, but you have to take the time to do these kind of things. And we could probably draw a graph that would be a direct line that would be success of a book in sales related to author activity. Uh, you know, I'm not sure why totally, but the more the authors out there talking about it, and, and social media has created an incredible opportunity. You know, when we first got into this business, and I talked to a whole lot of big publishers, uh, editors, etc., from big companies, other publishers, and you always hear this term, how do you sell a book? Well, you got to create a buzz. And I always used to joke around and say, what do I do, put a loudspeaker on top of my car and ride around and <laughs> announce this book in the neighborhood? How do you create a buzz? It's almost impossible for a, a, a beginning author, an unknown author, and a publisher who can't put full-page ads in the New York Times, you know, that kind of stuff, to do that. Social media gives you the chance. You get on Facebook, you could get that. You could get to 10,000, 20,000 people like nothing. And, you know, that's how you do it. You can blog, you can do all these things, but you, you can create a buzz now electronically. It's, it's interesting. What we're talking about here is one of the reasons that I, I started this show was the idea that you really just can't write the book anymore and be done. You know, there's all this right. other peripheral activity that has to be done that, that involves business and marketing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Were the two of you at SleuthFest this year? Uh, not no. SleuthFest, no. Okay. Um, because I, we were away this that was, that was the first conference that I had gone to. And Hank Philippi Ryan was one of the keynote speakers there. And you know everyone knows who she is. She is a big star in publishing now. She worked harder marketing herself and her books than any single person that was at SleuthFest. Every, oh, I believe it. it she was well, incredible. She was a machine, just a marketing machine. <laughs> and she is at the top of, she's at the top of her game. And um, yeah, if she's, she's got to do this, then the rest of us have, have, <laughs> have certainly got to at least match what she's doing. Yeah, it's funny you mention her because she's a friend of ours. And she's blurbed several of our authors. She's, you know, we have a very good relationship with her. But we use her, and you look at her Facebook stuff. We tell our authors, there's an example. She's out there all the time. Yes. And she today is a big timer, and she's constantly on it. She's a very good marketer, and you have to do that. She it's is. funny you mention her because we do that too. We say you go to. You do what she does, and you'll be okay. Yes, and I, I'm going to have her on uh, sometime in September, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I really, I, I really like her books, and I, I really like her attitude towards everything that needs to be done. And you're, I have used her as an example with people, too, because she's such a subtle marketer. Um, she's, she doesn't beat you over the head and say, here's my book. She does it in a funny way that at the end you, said, you, you look at it and you go, oh, she mentioned her book. But it doesn't even feel like she mentioned her book because it was done so cleverly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is a very important aspect. You can't go on social media and strictly pump, pump, pump your book. People get tired of that. You have to come at it, put some personal things in there, uh, talk about other things. 
MJ Rose, who's a big marketer and an author in New York, mm-hmm. you may know. Uh, she tells a story about you know she she went on a blog. There was a blog for people that owned the kind of dog she had just bought, and she said, "I just bought this. I can't remember what it was. It, uh, I don't know much about it, how to feed it, etc. Can you, you get some help?" And then she every time she went on, she signed her her blog, uh, MJ Rose, author. Uh, 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 I forget what it was, but author of 10 thrillers or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, about two months went by, and she's back and forth on this blog. People are telling her how to feed the dog, how to do this. Finally, somebody on the blog says, MJ, I noticed on your signature, author of so-and-so, what, what do you do? What kind of writing? And so then she went, oh, I wrote, and she listed all her books, and she told them what she did, and, you know, that she was a bestseller and blah, blah, blah. And the next day, her sales skyrocketed, she said. <laughs> but she do it by going and talking to the book. You know, they, they came to her finally because she had a, a tagline on there that uh-huh. got their attention. So we tell our authors, don't don't just go on there and say, buy my book, buy my book. Talk about it. You know, we got one guy, a uh, new author. He's up in there now, and he tells, he tells stories of what his two little kids say to him every day. And they have some, some really interesting, strange little sayings. You know, and then every once in a while he throws in something about, well, I'm, I'm trying to write my book, and they're telling me this, and but I do have my book such and such going out in whatever date it is. So, you know, you've got, got to come at it a little obliquely. You can't batter people every day on, on Facebook saying, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. It's yeah, be a little different. That's a good way of putting it, to come at it obliquely. One last question on social media. How much does it help an author to have an already established social media platform, an author platform, website that, that people are visiting, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of Twitter followers, a thousand Facebook oh. friends? How much does that help them in launching the book? I think that's incredibly valuable. It helps them an awful lot. We wish everybody had it. Once you have a big following, you know, for whatever reason, you have a lot of friends out there. And you say, hey, I just want you to know now that I finally got a manuscript of mine accepted for publication. It's going to come out as a book. All those people are going to have interest. Oh, yeah. That's, Great. that's a wonderful thing to have. Yes. I, I talk to people all the time who feel like they need to start their their branding author platform work like a month before the book is coming out. So as a publisher, you would suggest that that's a big mistake. As soon as you know you're going to have a book out there in in the future, or even think you might be going to have, uh, I would say start it right away. Yeah, there's never too too early to start. We do tell them, however, that you have to have sort of a crescendo build up when your book is going to, just when it's going to come out. Because, you know, if you tell people six months in advance, Give them the name of your book, and you know it's going to come out in January. They'll forget it by the time it comes out. So what you have to do is start talking about a lot of things about your writing, about what you're doing. Build up, drop the name of the book in there. Start to say, you know, I'm at four more months now. But as you get closer, what you want to happen is that when that book comes out, the week before, the, the day it comes out, and, and weeks after that. You want to have a lot of information out there. And hopefully at that point you'll have some reviews and you can say, by the way, so-and-so gave me a great review. You can read it here or there, you know, or, or put it on. But you have to you have to make sure that your timing for 
a lot of the specific book book type stuff is at the time the book is going to be available. Okay, thanks. That yeah. that answers that question, and it's something that I just I, I keep telling people this, and I, I, I now I can tell them that that, that you guys say it as well. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think that's incredibly good advice. All right, let's talk about distribution. One thing that Big Five publishers can offer is this enormous range of distribution options. They can basically get you everywhere, and they spend a lot of money to do it. Or if if they like you, they'll spend a lot of money to do it. You guys have limited resources, and independent publishers in general have limited resources, yet – Ocean View Publishing seems to do a great job of getting books into libraries, getting books into bookstores. Um, how is it that you do that? Well, first of all, we, we do have a distributor, who distribute Midpoint Trade Books, who distri- and our, our books are warehoused in, at the Ingham Warehouse in Nashville, Tennessee, and, in, and Midpoint is in Manhattan. They distribute nationally and in Canada, and they distribute also to some of the English-speaking uh, countries outside the United States. So we do have the opportunity to have our books distributed broadly. Uh, then we have about five translational agents throughout Europe that cover Europe and even Asia for translating our books into other languages. So, you know, that's not a huge part of our business, but it's building, and we now have books in other languages. As far as the, the, the more critical issue of not just having the ability to get our books distributed out there in the stores, etc. How do we get into libraries and places like that? It's, it's very hard work. We, uh, we, we do a lot. I mean, we, we have a very good relationship with Library Journal. We get all of our books have been reviewed by them. Uh, same with Publishers Weekly, same with Booklist. Those are three of the major sources for librarians to look to see what they want to buy. In addition, we send out uh, a whole lot of advanced reading copies, uh, many of them to libraries, and particularly the collection librarians who buy for several libraries get ARCs or advanced reading copies of all of our books so they can see that. We attend the ALA, the American Library Librarians Association meeting. We give away books. We give away catalogs. We talk to them. Uh, we encourage our authors to go to all their local libraries and offer to do presentations. Libraries are a very good place to draw a crowd. They're better than book signings on bookstores. You get more people at a library where you're giving a talk than you do coming in to get you to sign one of your books unless you're very well known. So we really work hard at it. Yeah, and also we subscribe to NetGalley, which offers um, electronic um, advanced reading copies, and librarians are big users of that service, so that's really good. But um, in, in terms of distribution, I mean, in terms of how libraries buy books, well, they, they buy them through Ingram, Baker and Taylor, and uh, Midpoint has reps that deal with um, Ingram and Baker and Taylor. So Midpoint will sell the books into Ingram, Baker and Taylor, and then they in turn will sell into the library. How important in in this era of a, a declining number of bookstores are library purchases now? Well, I think for a, for a small publisher like us, they're extremely important. I mean, there are a lot of libraries, a lot of people. Our authors sometimes say, you know, you, you put a lot trying to sell libraries, but, you know, they buy one book or so. Isn't it more important to get out to the public? Well, they're both important, but there are a lot of libraries around. Yes. And if you could sell, at our size, if you could sell a 
one book to most of the libraries in this country, you'd have huge sales. And uh, so they're an important customer. And now they're becoming more important even on e-books. You know, we're, we're marketing through Overdrive, Scrib. Uh, we're into all these kind of these, these opportunities to get your e-books into libraries as well. It's um, I, I I came across the the my first Matt Royal book from a library. It was it, sitting right out there in front. It was a librarian recommended book, and I I saw the cover. I don't remember which one it was, but it was obviously some kind of a Florida book. There were palm trees on the cover, so I grabbed it and read it and loved it. And I I, I think a lot of people just don't get the idea that. Someone like me would go to the library and read one book for free and then buy the next six or 10 or 30, depending on how productive they are. We hear that, too, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, people say, well, if it's in a library, nobody's going to buy it, and, and just the opposite. It's, it's People read books in libraries, buy more books than others. People that buy e-books buy more paper books than others. So, you know, none of us are geared to one way to do it, and the more we can be popular in all those outlets, the better off we are. So we see libraries as extremely important. Uh, we obviously feel the e-books are becoming incredibly important, so we want those to go into libraries. We, we don't fight about the prices. We price them reasonably for libraries or for for individuals, and we don't care. You know, I mean, they, they can adhere to the overdrive business model of how often they can lend them out or anything. We don't limit mm-hmm. that. Uh, we're, we're very friendly. We see libraries as a driver of a lot of our business. People that read books in libraries talk about them. They get to book clubs, and they increase your outside sales. Digital books and pricing. As a small independent publisher, what control do you have over ebook pricing? Well, we set, we, we set our list price. Okay. And and generally, an, an, uh, an ebook seller will pay you based on that price, even if they decide they want to discount it. So they can discount to what they want. We're not like the big guys arguing you can't discount our books. If, <laughs> if Amazon wants to do it, they can do it. Right. They pay us on, on, on the, our list price unless we agree to a special. I mean, obviously, when they go out with these 99 cents per day or so, that's what they're going to pay us on because we have to agree that if, if they do a special like that, we'll accept that. But otherwise, you know, they discount our books and they sell them at a discount price, but they, they pay the list price to us. So, you know, that that's okay. We're not going to fight with them. Uh, I mean, yeah. They're a big outlet for us. And you're happy for them to do that because you'll – what from your perspective, do you sell more books at a lower price? Well, yes. Yes, yes we do. Uh, especially when when they're run on a special. I mean, those are really big peaks for us. But, yeah, they carry. And, yes, you do sell more at a lower price. But we all have that concern. You know, you don't want to diminish the importance of books. Uh, but, you know, times are changing. And if you're going to read a book on, on an e-reader, uh, you don't want to pay. If you'd like you're paying for a paper book, a, a big hardcover so we've got to change with the times. And, yes, the big guys are fighting. Uh, they have a lot more clout than we have. I don't think we could survive fighting their fight with Amazon or, or Nook or any of these. So we sort of we look at those, at Amazon, at Nook, at, at Apple, at all of those as, as our allies, that they're helping us sell books. Uh, sure, the higher they keep the prices, that's nice. It shows the value of, of, of the, the format. But... 
you know, we can't control that. You know, we w- we want to build our spread. We want our authors to get more exposure. And, you know, maybe uh, after they get very well known, somebody like Terry Griffin, people who want paper books, want hardbacks, will buy more of them, and that's good for everybody. What's next for you guys? We're in August, so you've got four or five more books coming out this year. We do. We have some great books coming out. Uh, the one that just came out in July, Electric Procedures by Mary Jones, is a as close as we've gotten so far to a paranormal book uh, because uh, Ellie Harrison, who is uh, Elle Harrison, who's the protagonist, and our three girlfriends uh, have a great relationship story. They get into a lot. These are light mysteries. They're good mysteries, but they have a lot of humor in them. And Elle talks to her deceased husband. And uh, so it's a little bit paranormal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems to be talking to her, but nobody knows what's in her head, etc. And she gets a lot of static from her friends about that. But Mary Jones is a, a fairly uh, established writer, and she does very well. And these are very entertaining books. So that one's already out. The next one is a Florida book, uh, a Florida writer, Susan Klaus, who wrote uh, Secretary Reborn. Oh, uh, that was a fabulous book. That's a great book. Well, her next one is called Shark Fin Soup. It comes out the 15th of this month. And it, 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 it's an attack on the, the shark finning industry, that, you know, cutting the fins off for shark fin soup uh, and throwing the sharks back in to be devoured by other sharks. It's, you know, it's killing the sharks. It's changing the ecosystem. And Susan takes it on in a way with the same character, Christian Roberts, who was in, uh, you know, the protagonist in Secretary Reborn, comes back in this book, and he is dedicated to fulfill a, a, a death wish uh, that he saved the shark. Uh, after that, in September, we have stalked the boy who said no. I don't know if you took a look at Patty Sheehy's first book, was uh, The Boy Who Said No and Escape to Freedom. And this, we, we classified this, this is a little different for us. It is a thriller in that it has a lot of excitement, a lot of danger, but it's a true. It's based on a true story. It's a fictionalized story of the life of Frank Medeiros, who is uh, who Patty spent a lot of time with interviewing, et cetera, and he goes, they go together in book signings and everything, but he was a four-year-old boy in Cuba when Castro took over, and his grandfather was a hero, and his grandfather was very anti-Castro, very anti-communist, and so he was as well, except he was a very smart kid, and the Castro people recognized it, and they sort of conscripted him into the best schools, and then he ends up as in, in a special forces in the Cuban army. And he has a girlfriend who escaped to, to the United States, and so he's driven to escape, and this is what creates the thriller. He eventually does escape, and that's the story of the first book. Mm-hmm. The second book, he's in the United States, and Cuba actually sent agents over here to assassinate him. So that book comes out in September. It's called Stock. The boy who said no. In October, we have a uh, an author who's published before. His name is Joe Clifford. He's a Californian, but his book takes place in New Hampshire, and it's called Lamentation. And it's a story about two brothers, essentially. One is sort of a ne'er-do-well, but a pretty good guy, and the other one, his older brother, is a drug addict and always in trouble. And it's it's a story of love and sacrifice between brothers with a lot of things happening in this town. It has murders. It has a lot of bad things happening in it. And the addicted brother is very much in the middle of it. The other brother spends a lot of time trying to save him. 
but it's a great story of personal interaction and relationships. And then in November, we have the last book in the Black Stiletto series. I don't know if you're familiar with I that I am one, very familiar with that. Robert okay, this, or Benson. This is, uh, Raymond Benson. Raymond Benson, yes. Writer, uh, who wrote several of the James Bond books. So he's one of our more established authors. So this is the fifth book in the series. It's called The Black Stiletto Endings and Beginnings, and it is the end of the series. And it's a wonderful series because it, it takes place in two different time frames. It is Judy Cooper, his protagonist, who was the black stiletto, was sort of a, a crime buster of the Batman type with the, the uniform and everything in the late 50s and 60s. But present day, she's an old lady with Alzheimer's and she's dying. So the book bounces back and forth between the two settings, and he does it very well. He's gotten great reviews. It's a great series, and this one will finalize that series. And then the last book of this year is another very different book for us. <clears throat> this comes back to the paranormal, which we have stayed away from until now. But this is an incredible book that's called One to Go, and it's written by Mike Pace, who is an attorney, was a U.S. attorney in Washington, but now practices part-time and writes part-time. But the story is an interesting one. A, a young Washington lawyer is driving across a bridge in Washington, and he's texting his wife. And when he looks up, he's head-on head going to collide with a van. But instantly, he sees in the van several little girls. One of them is his five-year-old daughter. He, he swerves, but he can't avoid it. And he sideswipes the van, jumps the curb, and is hanging over the bridge, ready to go over. At that point, there's a freeze frame. Everything stops. And he's standing on the bridge. Nothing's moving, but these two young people, a young couple, very nicely dressed in jogging-type stuff, come up to him. And essentially it becomes a, would you sell your soul to the devil? Because these two are obviously the devil's disciples. Uh -huh. and they offer him a rewind of time. So what would you do to save your child? Would you sell yourself? So what, what, they, what they ask of him is that in order to replace these five souls, the driver and the four girls in the car, he would have to kill someone, anyone, every two weeks till he gets to five to replace these souls. So now you have this very innocent guy, never owned a gun, never shot a gun, very naive guy, who's now in a position to save his daughter and these other young girls, plus his sister-in-law who happened to be driving the van. He has to do this. So it's a very different book, but very, very well written. He's got uh, some great blurbs from already from some big-time authors, uh, so they really like it. Uh, uh, he's got one from Steve Berry, Doug Preston blurb this book, loves it. So uh, we're re really excited about it. We think we have a very strong uh, books book list coming out for the fall, for this fall, and uh, hopefully they're going to all do very well. It absolutely sounds so like it, and I can I can see why you guys have, have won so many and been nominated for so many awards. These, the, every one of those books sounded good. Well, thank you. Uh, we're very proud of them. We, uh, you know, as we say, we get a lot of submissions. We have to be pretty picky. You don't always pick as well as you'd like to, but uh, we've gotten fairly good at it, and and these, I think, are a bunch of our better books uh, over the last couple of years. These, they're coming out this fall. Well, I'm excited. I, I can't wait to read some of these, and uh, I, I, I I kept waiting for you to mention Terry Griffin's new book. When's it coming out? Uh, it's the uh, February book. No, okay. no, no. It's, it's 
Oh, is this? A, it's not. It's next, next year. September, a year from now. Okay, because yeah, he just, he just, he just had one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, found was found. his most recent, and the next one, and I'll give you a little. I have hint. It sitting right here in front of me. The manuscript's here, and I'll give you a little bit of a hint <laughs> that he changed it a bit. He was very nervous about it, but I read it and I loved it, and I think it's his best. But it's, I would say, it's the first half of the book is sort of his typical police procedural with Matt Royal. Uh huh. The second half is a courtroom drama, and it's wonderful. It's okay. It's very, very good. Uh, Matt has to go back to the courtroom for a trial, and it's it's just a wonderful book, and it mixes the two together, and because of his background, he does an incredible job. I, I honestly I said to him, Terry, I think it's your best book so far, and I've loved them all. I'm like you. I'm a big Matt Royal fan. Well, it combines two of my favorite things, Florida crime fiction and legal thrillers. <laughs> Well, that's what you get here. And uh, that's the nice thing with most of our books is you get authenticity because we have lawyers writing legal stuff. We have doctors writing more medical thrillers. We've got the CIA guys writing espionage. Uh, Yeah, yeah, David Putnam with 31 years of law enforcement experience writing a crime novel that took place uh, in in his stomping ground. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we're very strong believers that if you can't get the biggest names where everybody knows the author by name, what you want to get are authors who bring that kind of authenticity to their book, and that makes that gives it the, the feel that what you're reading is accurate and real, and you really feel involved. Well, Bob and Pat, it, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. How we've mentioned your website a few times. What's the uh, what's the address for your website? It's www.oceanviewpub one word dot com. And I will link to that in the show notes, and the show notes can be found at theauthorbiz.com slash session eight. So we'll have links there. Uh, There is a submission link. So if someone has met you somewhere or uh, wants to submit through an agent, they can do that there. Um, A lot of great books coming out. I can't thank you enough for for all your time this afternoon. Is there anything else, any other message that you want to get out today while we're we're still on? Yes. Yes, you have a big Facebook following. Yes, we do. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I will I will link to that in the show notes as well, as well as your Twitter account. Anything else? Uh, I think that's, that's good. Great. It's been great, Steve. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, including past episodes, you can visit the website at www.theauthorbiz.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions for the show, you can leave them at the site or you can ping me on Twitter. I'm at Steve Campbell FL. Please join us again next week for another informative episode.